0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, award-winning journalist and prolific author Andrew Nagorski talks about his latest book, Saving Freud, The Rescuers Who Brought Him to Freedom. This gripping account of Sigmund Freud's narrow escape from Nazi genocide was published in August 2022 by Simon & Schuster. Andrew Nagorski was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly.
1: Andrew, as far as I can figure, this is about your fourth book that is related to the Nazis. First, we had Hitlerland, then the Nazi hunters, then the year that Germany lost the war, and now this one.
2: Well, that's an area I never intended necessarily to uh, focus exclusively on, but I lived in Germany a couple of times as a correspondent for Newsweek, in Germany, in Russia, and Poland. My parents grew up in Poland and got married right before the war. My father was in the Polish army, managed to escape with Polish forces under British command. So I grew up with these stories of this period. And then as a reporter, kept encountering the aftermath of these stories and, and the legacy. And So at first I was a little intimidated at seeing, you know, there are all those big historians, William Shirer and Kershaw, who've done these enormous books and thinking, what else can I say? Well, it turns out there are always other stories out there, other angles on it. And the more I gathered information, the more I became fascinated by it. I took a psych 101 course in college, you know, felt I had sort of a passing acquaintance with Freud and his theories, but I had no sense of the man really. Or even somehow it hadn't registered to me that here's this man you usually think of turn of the century, Sigmund Freud, that he lived until the beginning of World War II. And then the question of why was he in Austria in 1938 when the Anschluss happened, when Hitler came right in and was speaking literally a few blocks from his apartment. Why didn't he get out earlier? And that I discovered when I was reading a memoir of Stefan Zweig, a very famous Austrian Jewish novelist at the turn of the century, who's largely forgotten now. But in his memoir, he mentions meeting Freud in Vienna in in, I think the late 20s and then the early 30s. Zweig gets out of Vienna, realizes once Hitler takes power next door, I got to get out of here. And ends up in London. And then you don't hear anything in his autobiography about Freud till 1938, after the Anschluss, when suddenly Freud pops up in London. You think there's got to be a story here. And that's what got me going on in the book.
1: It was quite arrogant, in a way, of Freud to think that he would be untouched. I know from your book that he did not identify as being Jewish, other than to say he didn't deny it, he wasn't practicing. But to think in 1938 that he would avoid it, could you explain that to
2: us? Well, I just amend what you said a little bit. He always identified as Jewish, as his background, but you're absolutely right. He was absolutely not religious. He was an atheist. He was not practicing. He married a woman who came from an Orthodox Jewish family, and Martha Freud, and and really— made a point of cutting down on any Jewish rituals in the home with the family. But he said that the fact that I come from this background makes me an outsider. And perhaps that's why I could challenge my peers in terms of my thinking about medicine, psychoanalysis. But he was so engrossed in his world. And he he considered himself largely apolitical, although he did really have ideas about some things. And for instance, he despised the Bolshevik Revolution and everything it stood for. And he also did not have illusions that what Hitler and the Nazis represented was a tragedy and would be particularly uh, a tragedy for Jews. But like a lot of people, I think, who get so immersed in their own world, and he was immersed in his world of Vienna, where he felt relatively comfortable when it was this multinational, multi religious state. Even when it became a smaller Austrian state, he felt that somehow I can just keep my head down, focus on my primary interest, which is psychoanalysis, and maybe this will pass us by. And he had a little bit of that Austrian sound of music mentality that the Austrians are a little more gentle than the Germans. Even the anti-Semites are not going to be as bad as the German anti-Semites. Well, of course, that proved to be a huge illusion.
1: So talk about the route you took from journalism into doing these long books.
2: Well, I think like any journalist who begins to dig into bigger stories which have a larger historical backdrop, you do them for a magazine or for a newspaper or if you're in broadcast journalism and you find yourself leaving so much out. That you've gathered and learned. At first, I I always had this feeling, say, if I was doing a cover story for Newsweek, oh, well, I have enough material. And of course, by the end of the process of the reporting, the research, it was a question of how am I going to reduce this to a Newsweek cover story or whatever else I was writing? So I think the instinct is at some point to say, I became passionate about this period, this geographical area, in part, not just because of the specifics of that period and and that area because you know of course you can say what was it in the german or austrian mentality that allowed this to happen but it, it gets to a more basic level what is it in the human mentality that allows things like this to happen and i think this whole area and time frame raises those questions that go beyond simple nationality or ethnic origin and that's what really got me going. And eventually I just found it not satisfying enough to do it in bits and pieces in journalism alone. And I wanted to be able to spin out these stories and particularly when the personalities are so colorful and Freud, I began to see him as a three-dimensional figure rather than just sort of this stereotype of the hair doctor, professor smoking his cigar and it looks a very off-putting character. In fact. The more I learned about him, the more I read of his correspondence and of the accounts of people who met him, how much of a striking personality he was with a very dry wit, but a very cutting wit at times. And then the people around him, their devotion to him, I think speaks to that personality. He would not have been saved if he had not made these connections with these people who started usually because they were interested in psychoanalysis and in this famous figure but then became close, not only colleagues, but friends. And that's why they went to such lengths to save him in the end.
1: You show that in the book, six people, and they're almost interlocked. If one had fallen out, the other five couldn't have pulled him to safety. But it was fascinating the way you talked about each one of these people. And Would you ever consider taking one of those characters and exploring a life further?
2: Possibly. I think any one of those people could have been a subject for a separate book. Take someone like Marie Bonaparte. First of all, her last name tells you something. She is the great grandniece of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, She's also the prince of Greece and Denmark. She marries into royalty. She is very wealthy but she's very sexually frustrated while very sexually active. And that brings her to Freud. Of course, people like that could merit a good biography. And there have been some biographies of some of these people. But I like the fact that the Freud story has these interlocking characters and interlocking parts. But again, if one of them had not stepped up to play that role, I'm not sure the others could have carried off his escape.
1: One of your characters established his rapport with Freud by talking about their mutual hatred of Woodrow Wilson. Tell us why those two men hated President Wilson so much.
2: William Bullitt, who was from a very famous Philadelphia family. As a young man, he had started out as a journalist, done very well for one of the Philadelphia papers, he also had ambitions to be a diplomat, and he had joined the U.S. peace delegation after World War I. This was the, the delegation where Wilson was very much a part of it, and he got to know this young guy in his early 20s, begins to be, know Wilson, and then he's sent off to Russia at his initiative to go negotiate with Lenin and Trotsky, and then he becomes very frustrated When Wilson seems to ignore his advice on dealing with Russia, and then the famous uh, peace agreement, the Treaty of Versailles, which he feels punishes Germany and Austria-Hungary to such an extent that it's going to ensure that there will be another war later, which of course, at least in part, is true. He also feels personally shunned. As we know in history, personal feelings matter too. He goes back to writing and doing other things, and then he shows up on Freud's doorstep because his second marriage is falling apart. So you have all these famous characters drifting in and out. And first, Freud deals with him professionally. He's heard about Bullet and this very, very promising young writer diplomat, and he asks him, "What are you working on?" And, and Bullet says, "I'm working on a, a portraits of all these major figures." At the Treaty of Versailles and what they did, including Woodrow Wilson. And I'm going to do a chapter on Wilson. And Freud said, if you're doing a chapter on Wilson, I would be gladly a co-writer on that. Freud loved the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where someone from a Jewish family like Freud was could do very well in Vienna, even though there was plenty of anti-Semitism and plenty of nastiness. But compared to other parts of Europe, there were a lot of possibilities. And he felt that the Treaty of Versailles was a product of Wilson's arrogance of trying to dictate the terms of the peace, And they found uh, that they shared that feeling. And then uh, Bullitt felt, well, Freud is going to be my co-author. He can't be my co-author on one chapter. He should be a co-author on a whole book. So let's make the whole book about Woodrow Wilson, and it will be the two of us. It did create a bond between them that would be very important when Bullitt goes on to become the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union in the early 30s and then to France, which gives him oversight of the U.S. diplomats in Vienna. And he assigns one of his diplomats to try to monitor what the Nazis are doing with Freud. And that becomes a big part of the story.
1: Andrew, as a writer, I think I recall that that book wasn't published until 1966. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: I think 1966 or 1968.
1: I was fascinated by the six people that helped save Freud. I was stunned by the good doctor.
2: Yeah, Max, yeah. Max Sure. yes.
1: What a lovely human being.
2: Yes. Max Sure. first of all, by way of background, Freud already in the early 1920s was coming down with cancer of the jaw because of his cigar smoking. So he was having constant operations. There were all sorts of medical procedures. It was painful. He had a prosthesis and... It was Marie Bonaparte, when she was on a trip to Vienna, who at one point met Max Schur, this much younger Jewish doctor in Vienna. And she discovered that this doctor had attended some of Freud's lectures, even though he was not a psychologist himself. And he was fascinated by Freud. And Marie Bonaparte told Freud, look, you need one doctor to coordinate all your medical issues, because you've got a lot of them, and you're too important to just sort of let these things linger. And so he takes on Max Sure, They get along very well personally. But one of the first things that Roy says to Sure, if you're going to be my doctor, you have to make me one promise. Once the pain becomes too excruciating, and I tell you, I don't want to continue, you have to help me end things. And Schur promises this. So then go forward several years and the Nazis come in and Schur, again, was savvier than Freud on terms of the political situation. Freud was very much in denial on on at least how it would affect him and his family. And Schur, who had a young family, managed to get somewhat miraculously through a very convoluted way a US visa in 1937 when the US was not granting a lot of visas to European Jews and he could have left Vienna then but he said I have a promise to my most famous patient who would be by that time become a friend I'm not going to leave him in the lurch I'm going to stay here in Vienna and he stays and then goes to accompany him to London at one point from London, he goes to the States to arrange kind of his paperwork so to make sure everything is still valid in terms of he, that he has the permission to bring his family there, but stays to the end with Freud. So, again, this is a, a real devotion and there was no guarantee that he would get out. So talk about dedication of Freud and his, and his entourage. Max Schur is, is is a stellar example of that.
1: If only we could find doctors like that today.
2: Yeah. Oh, and I would add a PS here. Max Schur wrote a book about Freud, which was ostensibly a biography about Freud, but also told some of his own story. And in trying to find out more of his story, at one point I come across a reference to a doctor who was the son of Dr. Schur. And there's a scene. In uh, the older Dr. Schur's book, where he describes how Freud congratulated him on having a new son and gave him some Austrian coins as something to keep with him for the rest of his life. And then I come across to a reference that th- this man, his son, who by now is close to 90, if he's alive, is still giving lectures at the Harvard Medical School and is at a hospital in, in Boston. And so I just call the number and I get a standard message from a nurse. And I try to explain in the voicemail that, no, I'm looking for Dr. Shure. This is the son. And I would like to talk to him about his father. And I have no idea, again, whether he's really there. Is he really alive? And could he be still practicing? I hear nothing for a couple of days. I give it one more shot. That evening, he calls me, say, this is Dr. Shure. Very vigorous. He's still working. And he helps me with some recollections of his dad at the time. He remembers the trip over. He was about six years old when by the time they crossed the Atlantic and were dodging German U-boats. And he gave me a paper that he delivered to the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society in the 90s about his father's relationship with Freud. So it's amazing what sometimes after all this time, you can still find connections and family connections. When you you have those kinds of experiences, you say, oh my gosh, somebody's smiling down on you to let that happen.
1: Exactly. (laughs) What are you going to do with that rich material?
2: Yeah, I put a lot of that in the book, not explaining necessarily everything in the book about how it happened, although in the acknowledgments I at least briefly mention it. But there's always an overflow of material and you try to do justice to the best parts but I tell you one thing I did though Peter Shore the son who's still alive I asked one of the questions I asked him do you have photos of your father with Freud and he said no I don't and that my father was very protective of the patient doctor relationship and never wanted to exploit it in any way and and then i went on a hunt through various photo archives and i found a wonderful photo of him with freud in london before he died and the photo is in the book and uh peter Schur, the son was just thrilled and and bought the rights to the photo as well so he could distribute it to everyone in his family so i felt there was a little bit of payback for his help <laughs>
1: Talk a bit about the basics of writing this. How do you do your research?
2: In the beginning, when I'm exploring a subject like this, I'm just trying to scoop up everything I can that's already either in print or easily available through archives, libraries. Of course, if there are still people to interview, I try to interview them as fast as possible. On this project, I really felt that was unlikely to happen. But aside from the son of Max Schur, I did find a descendant of Freud's sister who gave me a biography of his great-grandmother that helped fill out the portrait of the young Freud growing up as a child. And then, uh, as anyone who's walked into my office can attest, it is a, a pretty overflowing ocean of materials. And I I sometimes compare it to what you do with your kids when they are into the jigsaw puzzle stage. When they throw out that jigsaw puzzle on the floor and there are all these pieces and you suddenly say, okay, how does this stuff fit together? And then even more difficult, what pieces am I missing? And that's always a huge challenge. Then gradually I I take some notes. I begin to sort of plot out what would be the structure, who are the main characters, what are the sections here, how does that intersect. And even when I start writing, I usually find some of those missing pieces, if I'm lucky, and discover connections that I may not have noticed in the beginning. Because sometimes they are buried so deep in the material that something that can have real significance for your story might be in somebody's, footnote of a book that's out of print, you know, from the 1920s, and you sort of say, oh, my God, that explains this aspect of the story, or this explains why this person is important to the story. So some people, I think, have very organized, methodical files. I have, let us say, a more free-flowing system of gathering stuff, constantly going back over it, rearranging until I feel comfortable that I can write and begin to weave it together.
1: Did you come across Freud's granddaughter, Sophie Freud?
2: I did not meet her, but I do know of her, yes.
1: She died at the age of 97. What is it about those Freuds? They're (laughs) (laughs) long-lasting.
2: Well, some of them were. Unfortunately, four of five Freud sisters died in the Holocaust. One of the things about this story is, A lot of people might have thought the Freud name was so big in Europe at that time that even the Nazis might not touch them. Well, the four sisters who did not get out of Vienna died in the Holocaust. And I think that sometimes people ask me, did Freud have to leave? Wouldn't he have survived? Well, first of all, physically, he would not have survived because this was the end of his natural lifespan. But... Remember, most of this story is taking place before the actual Holocaust. There's been plenty of Nazi anti Semitism, but the full Holocaust is only looming. But, but you th- have
1: seen in the book when the Nazis come knocking on his door and start tearing the house apart.
2: Yes. When Germany took over Austria, they sent these goons into the houses of prominent Jews like Freud but it wasn't yet quite clear what would they do. They assigned a person called a trustee to each prominent Jewish family, and their basic assignment seemed to have been, at that stage, extort as much as possible from these families. And that happens with the Freud. But then what happens beyond that is unclear. And so in Freud's case, this brings us to the other de facto character in the rescue squad is a Nazi, Anton Sauerwald, And he comes into the Freud apartment, into the Freud publishing house, and sounds like a a horrible person spewing anti-Semitic slogans and denouncing people right and left. But then it turns out he's 35 years old. He had studied chemistry at the University of Vienna with an old Jewish professor who who was at that point no longer alive, but who had been a friend of Freud's. And as he's sitting, going through endlessly the Freud assets, He also starts taking an interest into all these papers and books that Freud has produced. And he begins to admire him a bit and probably transferring a little bit of his old respect for his old professor to Freud. And he discovers pretty much what there is to know about Freud, and one of the things you could figure out was that Freud had foreign bank accounts, which was perfectly legal up until the Nazis took over. As someone who had a lot of patients, actually, from America and Britain, it was only natural that he would have bank accounts for foreign currencies. But if that had been discovered by the higher ups, the Nazis, that could have been enough to stop him from ever leaving the country. And Sauerwald at the last moment does not reveal that to his superiors until Freud is safely uh, and his party is safely out of the country. For me, that was one of the really startling discoveries of this book.
1: That's the happily ever after ending to this movie that's (laughs) going to be made of your book. (laughs) (laughs) Emily Dickinson said that hope was a thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And I have hope for you because this book is going to be a wonderful movie.
2: Well, thank you. I would be delighted if your prophecy comes true and since I also like <laughs> Emily Dickinson, I went I went to Amherst College and she grew up in Amherst, oh, Massachusetts, so I especially like that reference. The,
1: the Bell of Amherst. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you advise biographers in undertaking a historical figure that so much has been written about?
2: Well, what I would say is just Keep an eye out for things that you don't know, first of all. If you don't know it, then a lot of readers are not going to know it, or at least may not have thought about some aspect of this person's life. And the other thing is, I think when taking a figure like Freud, a lot of the books tend to focus on the very serious theories, and, and that's all fine but I've always intrigued by the very personal. And from the time I started research on the book to the time I finished this book, I came away with a totally different impression. I felt that if I got to know him, if I broke through that first reserve, that this would be someone I would not only admire, but could feel a personal connection to. And, and for me, always one indication is does this person have a sense of humor and Freud for all his seriousness, in his letters, and his, his remarks, comes across that way. For instance, he only met Einstein once. They're both very famous at that point. And they have this meeting and And he's asked afterwards, well, how was this meeting of the two of you? And his answer was, Einstein has much a understanding about psychoanalysis as I do about physics. So we had a very pleasant talk. <laughs> know, a way of very nicely signaling, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I discussed nuclear physics, or he's not going to pretend that he underst- understood the theories of psychoanalysis. So he could relate to people. And then he had courage, too. That's the other thing. Towards the end, he may have misread the situation. He certainly did misread the situation. But then at the very end of this whole process of trying to get him out, and the hardest part was to get the Nazis to sign off and allow him out after they, they basically demanded a, a huge ransom. One of these Nazis, come, Nazi officials comes in and makes him sign this statement saying, I was treated very well under the new Nazi regime. I have no complaints against them. And he knows he has to sign this, this series of lies. And he's about to sign it. And he turns to this official and he said, could I just add one line? I would recommend the Gestapo to anyone. At that point, his housekeeper, who overheard this, almost drops through the floor. She's terrified that this Nazi is going to turn around and say, you can't leave. But the guy just turns around, grabs the signed statement and leaves. But the idea that he had the audacity to say something that last moment shows both his courage, his sense of irony, his sense of humor, even in the face of the the most dangerous situation. And the fact, for instance, that Freud wrote letters all the time it meant that you have a running commentary day to day about what he's thinking. And there's an immediacy to that. To me, that's the most vivid kind of history or biography.
1: Andrew, a lot of people don't have access to that kind of material, the letters. How did you find them?
2: First of all, almost all of Freud's correspondence ended up preserved in the Library of Congress. After his death, there was a real push by some of the Americans who followed Freud to preserve his material. That was the, the place where you gathered it. Luckily, a lot of the letters have been published in one place or another and translated. So, There are volumes of his correspondence between him and a number of the major players in my book. Uh, One of his sons edited a very good volume, which is a compendium of some of the major letters. So there's a lot you can find in published form, but sometimes you have to go through the originals.
1: Well, you've got to take me to the movie when it comes out.
2: I would be happy to. (laughs) I would be (laughs) more than delighted to. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so very much for your time. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
0: That was veteran journalist and author Andrew Nagorsky speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about his latest book, Saving Freud, The Rescuers Who Brought Him to Freedom. It was published in August 2022 by Simon & Schuster. This interview was recorded via Zoom on December 1st 2022. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.